For those of you that are in here that are married, I gotta ask this question. Anybody in here been married less than a year? Less than a year. Raise your hand. Less than a year. Less than two years. Wait for it. Okay. How many, anybody in here been married more than 50 years? We're going to jump to the end, other end of the spectrum. Am I missing anybody else here? Okay. Good. Awesome. Whether it's been between a little over a year or over 50 years, for those of you who are married, I want you to think back to your wedding. Now, if you're in here and you're not married, I want you to think back to a wedding that you've recently visited or you've attended or, or maybe somebody else, you know, you've been to multiple ones. Some of you young people and just out of college, you're like, I'm sick of weddings. I get invited to every one of my friend's weddings. I've bought so many dresses and rented so many tuxedos. You're like, please stop, right? I want you to think back to all these weddings, okay? Any of them very memorable? And why were they memorable? Why don't you think about that, okay? As, as a pastor, I've had my share of officiating many wedding ceremonies. I think back to the day I got married. I think back to the weddings before I was a pastor. And um, boy, all the kind of things that have happened. Um, the, the, probably the, the toughest one was uh, my own wedding when uh, the pastor kept going and didn't stop. And when we came to the vows that you're supposed to repeat, do you, Rex, take this, Jenny, to be your lawfully wedded wife, to have to hold from this day forward. And, and he just went on for like five minutes, it felt like. Never stopped. You know, I was supposed to repeat them too. It's like, ah. Can we do that again? I, I, I was shocked. I didn't know what to say. You're supposed to say, I, Rex, take you, Jenny. I, Rex, take you, Jenny. And then, you know, you stop, right? He didn't do that. He just, all the way through. And I stood there, jaw dropped. And he's like, the other pastors, two pastors, the other pastor, let's try that again. Yeah, let's try that again. I was so nervous. I looked at the pastor. I made my vows to the pastor. Um, it was so wonderful. Many years later when we went to a, a wedding uh, retreat or a marriage retreat that we got to renew our vows, and that was the first time I actually looked in the eyes of my wife, Jenny, and actually said my vows. Because um, I was so nervous I didn't want to mess up after he did that. I remember other weddings I went to. We literally sat down. The ceremony started, and the next thing you know, it was over. I was like, did, did this just get going? And there's a couple guys behind. It's like, dude, that was 11 minutes. <laughs> it's like, that was a quick wedding. It was quick. I mean, I was like, yeah, we drove three hours for an 11-minute wedding. It was awesome. Um, it, was a, it was many memorable, I think, back to all these different ceremonies. And I think about it, and it's like, you know, what is a wedding ceremony? You know, some people do crazy things at their weddings. One of my friends got married, and he, said he stood up front, and the, the groomsmen and the bridemaids, they came down, and every groomsman, because they got dressed in the nursery of the church, grabbed those little tykes guys. You know what I'm talking about, those little guys? And every groomsman had a little tykes guy in their hand. So as they came forward, and they shook the hand of the, of the uh, soon-to-be-married groom, they let go of the little tyke guy into his hand and walked over to get in their place. The, and the groom would stand there, and he just started collecting all these little tykes guys, and he had to start putting them in his pocket, and he had these pockets of little tykes guys. And, 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 you know, we sit there, and we, you know, we looked at that, and we laughed, and, and I felt sorry for my friend Kevin, and, and I looked at that, and then I, I've heard of other weddings that um, people just go full-blown with spending all kinds of money, or they, I've heard the wedding ceremonies where they played the Ohio State fight song as they come in and out, and it's like, What's going on, you know? 
You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever seen all those weddings? And you look at them and think about what really is a wedding ceremony? In the book of Genesis, and I, I didn't give this one to Dan to put on the screen, but in the book of Genesis chapter 1, this is where it all began. You know, if there was a, the first initial wedding ceremony that took place was in the book of Genesis in the very beginning. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, you can raise your hand. We'll bring one to you. If anybody needs a Bible, we'll bring one to you. Yeah. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 23. I'm sorry, 26. Oh, boy. Got my numbers mixed up. God said, let us make people in our image to be like ourselves. They'll be masters over life, and fish and the sea, birds in the sky, livestock, wild animals, small animals. God created people in his own image, patterned them after himself. Male and female, he created them. So God blessed them and told them, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Be masters over the fish and the birds and the animals. God said, look, I've given you seed-bearing plants through the earth, all the fruit trees of for your food. I've given all these grasses and other green plants, the animals and the birds food. So it was. And God looked over all he made and said it was excellent. It was very good in every way. And that all happened on the sixth day. And we look back at that and say, what an incredible thing. What an incredible thing, right? But before all that, when God made man and all sorts of animals, and he made Eve, he made, go on in chapter 2, on the seventh day, having finished work, God rested from, the, from all his work. He blessed the seventh day, declared it holy because of the day when he rested in, from his work of creation. This is the account of the creation of heavens and earth. But look at the next verse. When the Lord made the heavens and the earth, there was no plants, grain, growing. The Lord had not sent rain. No one was there. And we read to go on how he watered the gardens and placed man in the garden. And he placed man in the garden of being to tend and care for in verse 15. We read on through all, all creation, but we get to verse 23 when God creates Eve and he says, at last. Adam exclaimed, he's excited, okay? She's part of my own flesh and bone and she will be called woman because she's taken from a man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. And at that point in time of all creation, and bring it to sort of a climax with Eve. And God places woman, the suitable mate for a man, next to her. And he says, this is why a man leaves his mom and dad. And this is why a woman leaves mom and dad. And the two of them come together and are united in holy matrimony and marriage. And you'll hear it at every wedding ceremony, at least I hope every wedding ceremony, you'll see all kinds of crazy things take place, different music played, as we said, you can think back, remember moments. But I hope and pray that whatever wedding ceremony you've been to, been to there's been one thing that is not different, that you'll hear it everywhere you go. You'll hear the pastor say, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And hopefully you'll hear him say that God has established marriage as a covenant. I hope you hear that in every wedding ceremony you go to because that comes from God's Word, from Genesis chapter 2. And we look through all that and we say, wow. You know, God gave marriage uh, as a gift to Adam and Eve. And I was reading my notes and it says this. Let me read this to you. They were created perfect for each other. Marriage was not just for convenience, nor was it brought about by any culture. It was instituted by God 
with three basic aspects. One, man leaves parents and in a public act promount, promount, I'm sorry, promises himself to his wife. Two, the man and woman are joined together by taking responsibility for each other's welfare and by loving the mate above all others. And three, the two are united into one in intimacy and commitment of sexual union that's reserved for marriage. Strong marriages have all three aspects. Now again, we start this way and say, this is how God intended it. From chapter 2 of Genesis, this is what God intended, that man and woman come together, husband and wife, and he blesses them, and we celebrate that. It's a marriage ceremony is really a worship act. You come into the presence of God, and in front of God, you are going back to the beginning and celebrating what started with the first couple ever created, Adam and Eve. So for all you married couples out here, guess what? What you did on your wedding day goes all the way back to the garden, what God instituted, what God created. It's a beautiful thing, and it should be celebrated. So when you have a, an anniversary, you should celebrate. You should celebrate what God has done. But as you know, the Supreme Court of the United States released a decision earlier this summer on the decision of permitting same-sex marriage as a constitutional right that's applicable in all 50 states as well as our U.S. territories such as Puerto Rico, right? Now the Supreme Court declared as it was a tie 4-4 and so the remaining judge, one judge, then says, hmm, I'm voting in favor. So next you know we now have a 5-4 decision being made that same-sex marriage is a fundamental right protected by the Constitution. In doing this, they created a brand new civil right, which is going to have profound implications upon the church and its free exercise of religion for the future. You know, a few years ago, as homosexuality became a topic in this world more and more and brought up front, and then in sports, it became big headlines in sports. And then now this summer with same-sex marriage, has become even bigger. And I have to ask, when all that started taking place, and then after the summer when it happened, what was your initial reaction? I'm not going to ask you to put it out loud, but how, how did you respond when you, when you heard this? Was it like, no big deal? Was it devastating to you? Did it make you angry? Did it make you celebrate? Some of you have friends, you might have relatives that were just excited about this because maybe that's the kind of behavior and lifestyle they live. The internet, Facebook, social media went berserk with all kinds of comments and posts and blogs and stories. And I'm telling you, you can easily find yourself wrapped up in reading those. And then your anger and your emotions start boiling over. If not boiling over, your head starts spinning because you have so many opinions, so many voices shouting, saying, this, this you're like, then you start like swaying one way, like, well, I, I understand what they're saying, and when I feel bad for this party, and, 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 and I, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's easily to get caught up in the sway and the emotion of what's happening. But we've discussed in the last few weeks that here's where it all begins. In the beginning, what? In the beginning, God... And we got to stop and say, it wasn't me, it wasn't my opinion, it wasn't a court ruling, 
It was an invention of man. It was God in the beginning who created all things out of nothing. Nothing from, I'm sorry, from nothing to new. It's amazing. Only God can do that. And in his creation of crowning moments when he created man and woman and created them with distinctive differences physically. Gender was decided in Genesis, not in a laboratory, not in a court, but in Genesis, God determined gender. And then in Genesis, God determines and really creates, invents, institutes marriage between man and woman. From the beginning, God. And we've been talking about this last few weeks, but here's the problem is that sin enters the world. And as we learn in Genesis chapter 3, and then all the way as we get to Romans chapter 1, that man said, although I know the truth, I'm suppressing it. I'm holding it back. I'm the, forget the truth. I don't want truth. I want my opinion. I want to feel good about myself. It's no longer God on the throne. It's myself on the throne. And even though we would never claim to replace God on the throne, who still makes the decisions? We do. We choose our own way. We choose to be our own God. And we become perverse and sinful, choosing lifestyles that are not godly. And Romans chapter 1 specifically looks at sexual sins and specifically even more so at homosexuality and says this behavior is vile, degrading, and corrupt. And we sit there and people say, well, Christians are so harsh. Listen, we're just repeating God's word, what God said. This is what happens. If you choose to walk away from God, this is what happens. Paul just decided, listen, I'm going to focus in on this one particular area of sexual sins. But for any sin that's out there that we all commit, can be said of in Romans chapter 1. When you walk away from God, this is what's going to happen. The Bible speaks clearly about many things, and one which is homosexuality. Now, we can wish that it didn't happen. We can pretend that it doesn't. We can arrogantly assume that, you know, what's been preserved for us in the pages of God's Word is full of ancient and backward thinking. Some argue that things have changed. Society has changed. Because society has changed and evolved, the Bible doesn't apply anymore because it's ancient writings. That's what some people think. I've heard people say, forget the Old Testament. We're living in New Testament times. You can't separate out Old Testament and New Testament. And when you hear somebody say, forget the Old Testament, listen to the New, they've got false teaching going on and a false belief. And we're not here to judge them and say, listen, you do, do. we need to help guide them back to truth, the whole truth, which is Old and New Testament. Let's remember homosexuality has been around for a long time. And let's recognize that laws against homosexuality have been around just as long. The Bible's position, God's word, has never wavered on the penalty of this particular sin as well as other sexual sins, as well as all sins. For the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternity through Jesus Christ. He didn't say the wages of this one particular sin, which is of all sin. Let's keep in mind this as well, that God's a God of love. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to bring a cure. 
having conquered sin and death, he extends the offer of salvation to all of us. Not just those that really want it, but to all of us. God's words reveal to help us heal. You tweet that one out, right? God's words reveal to help us heal. We're all in need of healing. He's, he brings life and truth and freedom. Amen? Amen? In 1962, I want to take you back to 1962, because in 1962, a court case took place in which, some of you may remember this, Bible reading and prayer was removed from all public schools. And we didn't ask God to leave. We basically kicked him out of the schools. We didn't ask for his opinion. We just did it. Hosea 4.6 reminds us that we are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And today many people simply just don't know morals because we're no longer teaching it. It's funny. We expect people to act in a godly way, but we aren't teaching godly things, so why should we expect people to act in a godly way? We expect people, they should be kind to each other, just simple things, you know, just, well, it's common sense. Who's teaching that today? As soon as we removed all these things from school, we left it in the hands of parents. Parents, if we aren't teaching it, who is? We say, well, the church should be parents. Let's not pass off that responsibility. It's our responsibility as parents, right? When we were born, we aren't programmed and loaded with a software that helps keep us from sinning. It isn't like, it's like we're born and you know, it's uploaded and, hey, I've got this wonderful program that keeps me from sinning. We don't have that. That's why David said this in Psalm 119, verse 11. I'm going to have the kids help me on this. Kids, you're going to help me with this. Okay, ready? Repeat after me, kids. Thy word have I hid in my heart. Oh, we've got to do better than this. I need all the kids, okay? So I need all the kids. Ready? Let's try this again. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Okay, now, church, let's do this together. Thy word, Thy word have, I have I hid in my heart, in my heart that, I that I might not sin against God. David said, listen, I wasn't born with this program in my mind to keep me from sinning, so I must take God's word and hide it in my heart. I must memorize God's word. I must read God's word so that I will not sin against God. We have a responsibility to learn God's Word, to get into God's Word, to memorize God's Word so that we don't sin against God. If God's Word's not in our heart, if His instructions are not programmed into my heart, in my head, in my conscience, I'm unrestrained. I'll drift towards a life of immoral decisions and painful consequences. Proverbs 14, 12 says, There's a path before us that seems right, but it leads to death. You see, a lot of us, again, think, this is a great way to go. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, but we don't understand that the path that I'm choosing, even though it seems right, leads to death, so I better make sure the path I'm choosing is a godly path. Isaiah 5, 20 through 21 says, What sorrow are for those who say evil is good and good is evil? That dark is light and light is dark. That bitter is sweet and that sweet is bitter. What sorrow for those who are wise in their own eyes and they think of themselves as clever. What was he saying in Isaiah? He's saying, I feel really bad for people who are looking at bad things and they say those are good. And people who are looking at good things and they say those are bad. I feel, I feel really bad for them. What sorrow for them? What pain for them? Have you ever seen somebody, and we just saw a movie recently, where a doctor was very arrogant and he would not believe 
in anything of God whatsoever. He's like, people give God credit for healing. I'm doing all of his work. I should get the credit. The doctor was very arrogant about all this, right? And I felt bad for him. I felt bad for him because he was so arrogant in his thinking. And Isaiah says the same thing, basically what God is saying. See, we're no longer anchored in God's word, and then what happens is we drift into dangerous waters in how we live. God's word is clear about sin. God's word is very clear about sexual sins. God's word is very clear about homosexuality. He's very clear. We read Romans 1, as I said earlier. We choose to suppress the truth, not worship God. That leads to a lifestyle of self-worship. It leads to an absence of godliness, and it leads to a lack of thankfulness, and it continues into a downward spiral. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Leviticus 20, 13. You're saying, well, show me some scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, where God is clear about homosexuality. There you go. Feel free. Write it down. Look it up. God's word is very clear. Uh, last year, I picked up, it's called the Founder's Bible, and basically, uh, historian David Barton, who's done a lot of research, and I mean a lot of research on this nation, and the Constitution, and our founding fathers, uh, and in this Bible, um, as you go through, he's got different articles and different things written up about the Constitution. Be amazed how much our country was founded on godly principles. And as I was reading in here, I found something that what he had to say about our nation's beginnings and our Constitution and our forefathers' position on homosexuality. And I want to read to you from here what he said in, in an article. Homosexuality was too detestable and embarrassing to be mentioned in public or in polite society. The attitude of the founders of this subject was exactly the same. In fact, notice how James Wilson, who signed both the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, he was placed on the Supreme Court by George Washington. Okay? This is how he addressed the subject of teaching law students about various sexual crimes, first rape and then homosexuality. Here's what he said. A rape is an irreparable and most atrocious aggression on the right of personal safety. On this subject, for an obvious reason, particular observations will not be expected from a lecture in the hall. They're fit for the book and the closet only. For even the book and closets, they are fit only because they're necessary. The crime not to be named, I pass in total silence. You see, the act of homosexuality was so shameful that Wilson would not even discuss it publicly. He described it as that crime to not be named among Christians. You want to know how our founding fathers felt about this subject. They didn't want to talk about it. It was so degrading, so vile. That's how they looked at it. And it's amazing, though, you fast forward a few hundred years, and now the Supreme Court says, hey, let's legalize this. A shift in our nation, right? And it becomes depressing and causes question. And younger generations today are growing up with this saying, this is normal, right? No, this is not. From the beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God created things this way. And as we spiral out of control, we walk away from God, we end up where we are now. This sin can't uh, be argued. God's word is clear. It's very clear. 
So when you come in here this morning, we're not here to argue about this. We're not here to say, well, is it right or wrong? We, we, God's word is very clear. What seems to be unclear as we gather as God's people is how we react, how we respond to all this. What, what, what do we do as Christians? You know, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, right? We're like, well, I don't want to hurt their feelings. I'm supposed to love them, but I don't want to get them upset, right? Well, I'm sort of private in my faith, so I'm not going to come out and share. And there's others that's like, I'm bold, and I want to let people know. So we've sort of come together with mixed emotions, mixed feelings, and question and say, how do I respond biblically to this and other things that are going on? Well, we've seen all the reactions. If you're out there reading or checking out social media or the Internet, whatever, you're seeing all kinds of reactions. I want to share with you two reactions that, that sort of took me by surprise. I don't know why they did. Um, but here's the first one. The state of Mississippi, a county clerk made this statement. Uh, it's from the Granada County Circuit Clerk. Um, she decided to relinquish her elected position that she's held for 24 years. Basically, as a county clerk for 24 years, she's held this job in, their, in the uh, government office, and she said, I'm resigning from my position because she refused to issue a marriage license to a same-sex couple. She goes, I'm not going to do it. This is what she said. I chose to obey God rather than man. She wrote this in a resignation letter attributing her decision, the Supreme Court pronouncement of the right for all men and women to marry regardless of sexual orientation. She said, the Supreme Court's decision violates my core values as a Christian. She wrote that to the Board of Supervisors. My final authority is the Bible. I cannot in all good conscience issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples under my name because the Bible clearly teaches that homosexuality is contrary to God's plan and purpose for marriage and family. And I saw that, and, and you know, I'm not going to ask you for your initial response, and please don't judge me on my initial response, okay? My initial response was, all right, there you go. Then my next response was, whoa, no, no. Now I'll tell you why. If we, and here's what I, I, I was thinking through. What happens if, as Christians, we stop serving in politics because we don't like the decisions that are being made? What would happen if all Christians in their government positions said, we didn't like that decision. Let's all quit. Let me ask you now who is running our government. No Christians. If we remove all light and all salt from different places, guess what we're going to end up with? A darker government, right? A tasteless government, right? A very godless government. So that, that was my first initial reaction. Turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. First book in the New Testament. Matthew, chapter 5. And again, I'm not here to place judgment on, on this woman for her decision. I'm just sharing the decision she made and my initial thoughts. If she felt convicted by God's Spirit, this is what she's supposed to do, then she did what she felt was right according to God's Spirit. And if that's what God's Spirit told her to do, then she did what she needed to do in obedience. Verse 13, chapter 5. Jesus is talking here, and he says this. You, talking to Christians, okay, to those who believe, those who follow, you're the salt of the earth. What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? Can you make it useful again? It'll be thrown out, trampled underfoot. It's worthless. You're the light of the world, like a city on a mountain, glowing in the night for all to see. Don't hide your light under a basket. Instead, put it on a stand and let it shine for all. In the same way, let your good deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will gather and praise your Heavenly Father. Jesus said, listen, listen, 
as believers in Jesus Christ, as followers, your salt, your light. Salt preserves. No salt in those days, because of no refrigeration and so forth and so on, you'd pack in salt to preserve it. If you didn't have salt, it decayed. It just got rotten, right? We are salt. We preserve. This world's going to decay very quickly if we are not being salt in this world. Jesus said, you're also light. You think back in the biblical times in these cities, you know, wherever they were located, when the lights were on, you could find those cities. If the lights were not on, you had no clue where the city was at. As Christians, we should be evident and visible and seen wherever we are, like a light at night in a city that lights it up. So as Jesus is talking through these things, I'm looking at this and saying in verse 16, in the same way, let your good deeds, let the way you live shine for all to see. So I'm sitting there going, okay, so her choice to leave that government position, was that the right thing or not? Should, should we quit or avoid places in our life that we feel, that's just, I'm not, I don't agree with that, so I'm not going in there. I'm not going to do that. Is, it, is that the right thing when we're called to be light and salt? Now listen, please, this, okay. Pastor Rex said I shouldn't go to places, I shouldn't quit. Or to, I'm, I'm not telling you any of that. I'm just saying this is what was going through my mind. I'm thinking this through. I'm trying to find the answer. So when I pray, I have to say, God, what do you want me to do? Am I to be the salt and the light here in this situation as you've called me to be, or is this a situation I'm not supposed to be in? Because if I am a man who lusts after things with, with women, do you think God's really going to call me into a strip joint to preach the gospel? No. Is that clear? So we have to be attentive to God's voice and say, God, what is it that I'm supposed to do or not do in this situation? We do know this. God's called us to be salt and light. Amen? Can't argue with that. Then there's the Oregon Bakery story where they stood by their decision to deny a cake for a same-sex wedding. So an Oregon baker basically said, I, actually, he is now facing legal action. Uh, he's being sued by the same-sex couple. They wanted a cake for the upcoming wedding, and he's like, no, because of my religious faith standing, I'm not going to bake a cake for you because I refuse to do that for a wedding ceremony. Um, report on the news said the woman who filed the complaint said she previously purchased a wedding cake from this bakery for her mom without incident, but denied service after she told the owner that the cake she wanted to buy was for a same, her same-sex wedding. Now again, is this the right decision by the bakery, by this Christian couple who owned the bakery? Again, I'm not here to say whether that was right or wrong this morning. I'm not going to tell you what the right or wrong decision was. What God laid upon the heart of that, that person is, is their They've got to follow in obedience, okay? Um, I guess I would sit here and say this. If I'm going to deny you services at my bakery because of your same-sex marriage, then I probably should have a little application for everybody to fill out and ask them, have you had premarital sex? Have you had lustful thoughts? Have you gossiped? Have you lied? Because if you're a sinner, then I probably shouldn't serve you. That's going to be tough because that means I'm going to have to close my bakery. I can't serve anybody. I can't even eat my own cake because <laughs> I myself am a sinner, right? 
And then it becomes very dangerous when we start becoming judges and we look at people and their sinful behavior and deciding what we should do. Now, again, I understand the convictions of this person in court, and I understand the, the convictions of this person who's in the bakery. I understand their convictions. But what's the correct response? Again, I'm not debating or discussing the decisions made by them, but we have to ask, what is our response as Christians in light of sinful behavior that surrounds us? If we call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, that cross has to mean something in how we live, how we act, how we make decisions, how we stand for Jesus or not. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are called to stand in the name of Jesus and be that light and be that salt. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we have to seek wisdom then in how we live and say, God, help me, guide me. I want to make the right decision. No, I don't want to offend them, but I don't want to offend you. I'm not ashamed of your gospel. For it's a power unto salvation. Amen? As we seek God's direction, we're commanded to do something, and I want you to hear this, please. Let me tell you what we're not commanded to do, first of all. I, I looked for this. I tried to find it. I tried to find somewhere in the Bible, and um, I couldn't find it. Matter of fact, I had to put a note in my phone because it's like I can't find it anywhere. And the scripture was coming from James. Because, see, I was trying to find out where in the Bible does it say we're to judge one another. We're to love one another, pray for one another, help one another, be kind to one another. There's got to be somewhere it says judge one another, right? Because don't we do that? Look what they're doing. Look how they're dressed. We, uh, we got to spend a week um, in Indiana with my family, and it was, it was a great week. It was a really great week. Um, but one of, one of the days we actually went to Chicago, so we drove to Michigan City and outside Michigan City, got on a train, took the train into Chicago, uh, went to a ball game and came back. Let me, let me say this. In case you didn't know this, if you haven't been out of, outside of Wauseon or Fulton County, Chicago's a little different. Don't know if you knew that, okay? A lot of people look different than me. I was really surprised how they looked, um, acted different. I'm being very sarcastic, by the way. I've been to Chicago many times. You know how easy it is to judge people? It's real easy, isn't it? Uh, let's just say on Friday, God could have slapped me multiple times for being judgmental, okay? Rex, again, really? You're judging that person? Really? Look in the mirror, Rex. Um, because it's so easy. I look at people and say, what was that guy thinking? What was she doing? Why is she dressed like that? Why is he acting that way? Did you hear him? Man, what a sinner he is, right? God could very easily say, hey, Rex, check out the mirror. Look at it. Oh, sinner. Yeah, I see that, God. Gotcha. But we, we, we judge one another, don't we? I've not found anywhere in Scripture where it says, thou shalt judge one another. I never see anywhere in the Bible where Jesus said, verily, verily, do what I do with. Judge one another. I don't see that anywhere. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. This is coming from James. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There are only one lawgiver, only one judge, the one who's able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Ooh. So when it comes to the subject, and looking at the Supreme Court ruling, 
Oh, how I want to judge as a human being and say that I'm so much better than them because I know God's rules and laws and heart. Thing is, maybe they don't. They don't know that God says, don't do this. It's a downward spiral that leads to death. But I know it. In John chapter 8, turn with me there, please. John chapter 8, Jesus sharing a story, and I referenced this scripture last week. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early next morning he was back again at the temple. Crowd is gathered around. They're sitting down to teach them. And as he's speaking, the teachers of the religious laws and Pharisees brought a woman they caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Verse 4. Teacher, they said, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stone her. What do you say? Which means they're going to grab a bunch of rocks and stones, basically death punishment on the spot because she was messing around. Okay? They were trying to trap Jesus with, into him saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept the man in an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, all right, stone her. But let those who've never sinned throw the first stones. They stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to her, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Now go and what? Sin no more. You know, when I read this story and look at it and go over it, I think, man, she was a sinner, man. She's caught. That was embarrassing, right? When you've been caught in your sin, it's embarrassing, isn't it? When we get caught in a lie or we get caught doing something we shouldn't do and somebody catches us, we're like, hey... It's like, yeah, you're right, I was wrong. It's embarrassing. Can you imagine how embarrassed she, stood, she was as she stood there amongst all these men with all these rocks in her hands just ready to put her to death? What does Jesus say? Hey, you've never sinned. You never messed up. Feel free, go ahead and throw that first rock. Everyone standing there knew it. You know what? I'm guilty too. Who am I to judge her and accuse her and condemn her and throw a rock at her when she sinned and I've sinned? I'm, I'm just as bad. They dropped their rocks and left. They had no argument. Sometimes as Christians, whether it's what we've been talking about here is homosexuality or whatever sin it may be, a lot of times as Christians we stand with rocks ready to throw because we're so mad and maybe because we're scared because we don't know how to react to what's going on. We don't know what God wants us to do or say, and we hold on to those rocks. About that time, we have to examine our heart and ask, have we sinned? Are we sinners? Do we make a good judge? Because if we are good judges, guess what? According to James, there's only one judge. And so if you think you're worthy to judge, that makes you equal with God. Anybody in here want to claim equality with God? I hope not. And then the last thing he says, go and sin no more. You know, we're reminded that we're not responsible to judge the world. We're responsible for getting things right with God first. You know, the wonderful thing about the gospel is, and the fact that God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, is He looks at all of us and says, no matter what sin it is you're in, no matter what sin has knocked you off your feet, no matter what sin is entangling you and causing you to stress your life right now, I will forgive it. Because I sent my Son, Jesus Christ, to die on that cross, to conquer sin and death, so that you can have new life. 
That's the amazing thing about grace is it looks at us and says, I don't care what you've done. I can forgive that because I'm God. But in our hearts, sometimes it's hard for us to think, he'll forgive that. Yes, he will. Yes, he will. And we're responsible then as human beings to say, let's get this right with God. Let's get things right with God. Let's seek forgiveness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to what? Forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. He is a faithful God. He will forgive us. Our relationship with God is first. Our hearts need healing. Our hearts need forgiveness. Then we look around and we look at everybody else after we're right with God and we're going to keep trying to get things right with God. We look around at everybody else and we say, wow, they're messed up too. But we don't look at them like that. We look at them as like, you know what? They need God too. That's how we should look at them. Matthew 22, 36, 40, Jesus said this. As a teacher of the law came and said to Jesus, he said, Jesus... What's the greatest commandment out there? What's the greatest law? Top it off. Sum everything up. What is the most important thing that we should get out of all this? Jesus said what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first and greatest commandment, Jesus said. Second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commands. That's why in our church we talk about loving God and loving others. We've got to love God first. That's why we come on Sunday morning to worship him to humble ourselves and say, we're not God. God, you are, and we want to love you. We want to sing to you. And we walk out of here saying, okay, it's time for us now to go love others with the love of God. And I can't love others until I've got the love of God in me. I can't forgive others until I've got the forgiveness of God pouring all over me. What does God command us to do? I believe love. We hear it every wedding ceremony, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? The greatest command that God gave us through His Son, Jesus Christ, was to love God and love others. We're to love. How are we supposed to love? Patient, kindness. We're not going to be jealous. We're not going to boast about it, right? It's not going to be rude. doesn't demand its own way. Love's not irritable. doesn't keep record of wrong. doesn't rejoice about the injustice but rejoices when truth wins out. Love never gives up. Love never loses faith. It's always hopeful, endures through every circumstance. We, we hear that in 1 Corinthians. Paul says that, right? That's what love is. God's words are clear on defining sin. We know that. God's word is clear that he was here in the beginning. And he instituted marriage. He created gender. We, we understand all this to be true. The problem we have as Christians is accepting truth or maybe responding to truth with people around us. I want to ask this church. I want to ask this church to be biblical. God, how do I respond in a way that honors you? God, if I'm judgmental, forgive me. God, if I'm not showing love, help me to show love. We can do all kinds of incredible things, but without love, it doesn't matter. God's words are clear on salvation. Without his son, we have no eternity. Without forgiveness, we cannot stand before God. But he's forgiven us. He's given us his grace. He's given us his spirit. And with God's spirit in us, we can be salt and light. We can love people 
in spite of what's going on in their life and not judge them. The Bible's clear on the things we're facing today. I pray that God's Spirit makes it clear to you and to me how we respond in love to people today. A lot of people out there hurting. A lot of people lost. Some of you in here right now might be dealing with some issues that it's like, I'm very confused on a lot of things. Begin with getting it right with God. From there, take God's love and forgiveness and extend it to those around you. We'll start there, okay? Would you please stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I think about what can be said or not said, and I think about, Lord, what to share. Lord, I want to honor you with what is said. And Lord, I, as I said, it's very easy for myself to stand up in front of all this church as a pastor, and I, I get it, God, I'm not perfect. My opinion can be skewed just as well as anybody else's. And when I look and see how people respond to the Supreme Court ruling or they respond to other things that we look at and say, well, that's sin, that's wrong. Lord, it's very easy to become judgmental. And Lord, forgive me because I know I've been judgmental. Lord, help us as a church not to be judges and rulers, but to be followers of you. Help us, Lord, as we look at our own lives and say, Lord, we're, we're pretty messed up. We, we really can't throw stones at anybody else because we've got enough sin in our lives. So, Lord, help us, first of all, to drop the stones in our life, the judgmental thoughts and attitudes. And, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for our sins. Because we're not perfect. We've messed up. And, God, and through that forgiveness, we ask that your spirit that dwells us to give us strength now to love others. We want to love you, but God, we really need to get better at loving others too. And it's hard because we tend to put on judgmental eyes instead of a loving heart when we run into people. So Lord, excuse, get rid of those judgmental eyes of ours and give us a loving heart. Lord, we're not, we're not excusing people's behavior. We're not applauding it. We're not in agreement with sin. We're in agreement with you. You've called us to go into this world and be light, to be salt, to love others, to share our faith with others. They may not want you, and they may not want eternal life. They may not want freedom right now because they're so caught up. Lord, we're going to trust that your spirit can do all things. So, Lord, we pray that you speak through us, through our loving acts. Lord, I thank you for this church. Lord, I pray for clarity as your spirit speaks to us throughout this rest of the service, through the rest of this day. Lord, if there's at any point in time we're saying, oh, I'm really confused, God, help us to stop and talk with somebody. To look into your word and pray and say, Lord, help me clear this up. Be crystal clear, Lord, how we can live for you. We love you, Lord. We want to sing to you now. In your name we pray.